Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today we are starting a new season, and one which I think will be extremely beneficial. While all of the other seasons consisted of me trying to piece arguments and ideas together, which I hope were, were good and helpful, this season's going to be a little bit different. I'm still going to throw some of my thoughts into the mix here, but I want to share with you some of the most influential works that I have found on my journey to nonviolence. Now, some of these resources are old, like very old, and are therefore public domain and can be accessed on sites like Project Gutenberg or uh, LibriVox. Other resources aren't quite as old, and I have received permission to reproduce the works from the generous copyright holders, which I'll reference in each episode. So if you can get these resources at other places, why am I putting them here? Well, first of all, I'm being selective on what I I put into this season. There's so much out there on nonviolence, so this is really a selection that I made to highlight some of the best works that, that have influenced me. Of course, there are more modern books or articles that I could put here, but modern works are harder to get approval for, and longer works are usually just too much. I mean, books are great resources, but they often don't translate well to a podcast that intends to give you smaller chunks of information. So I wanted to be selective in terms of quality works, but also in terms of giving you great content in a small time frame. There is going to be at least one major exception to that on this list, um, as there's going to be at least one whole book that I'm going to read in smaller chunks, just because I think it's so jam-packed with information and it's organized so well. Um, I just I think that every chapter is is amazing and um, and and want to get that whole work to you. So the other reason that I want to do this season is because not all of the works that I'm going to present are available in audio format, though some of them definitely are, um, and some of them even through LibriVox are are available for free. And you might even get a way better reader than, than me, though LibriVox can be kind of hit or miss. I know how pressed for time I am to do physical reading, and I wanted some of these great pieces to be available in audio format. My goal isn't to provide you high-quality renditions here, as I'm not a professional reader. I'm going to make mistakes, and um, oftentimes, unless they're really bad, I'm not going to edit them out. I'm just going to kind of read through them. And I'm not going to learn the Latin or French necessary to say some of the, the particular words or phrases that, that the authors use at times. So I'm going to butcher some stuff here for sure. My goal here is not that you're going to get professional reading, but rather that you're going to get access, uh, not to the highest quality audio renditions, but to quality um, content in terms of ideas. Finally, I'm going to provide you with something the other sources won't. So LibriVox is great. It's going to give you the, the unadulterated source um, material. But I'm going to get you some commentary. And maybe that's a good thing. and Maybe that's a bad thing. But the good thing is that it's, it's up to you to take it or leave it, right? If you don't care what I say, great. The works speak for themselves. But since this is a podcast on nonviolence... I want to explain to you why I have selected the works that I did and really pull out what I think is vital about each piece and and what I think you can kind of focus on. I'll also try to reference previous episodes which these works tie back into. One final thing, I I do want to say that a lot of these works, um, 
you know, I, I found through through various resources, you know, sometimes they'll they'll be linked like in a book, they'll reference this author, this title, and like, oh, that's awesome. Sometimes I come across it just on my own. Sometimes through through various nonviolent resources, um, you know, some of the people that I follow or whatnot. And but there are quite a number of of the ones that I've selected. Uh, you're gonna find in this wonderful book called uh, Christian Peace and Nonviolence: A Documentary History, um, and it's edited by Michael Long. And Michael Long has done a fantastic job of piecing together so many different voices from nonviolence throughout history. And it's it's not Long writing these pieces, but it's his him compiling uh, a variety of resources. I think he's got over a hundred. Uh, something like that, over a hundred works from people throughout the ages. I mean, from from early Christianity all the way to modernity, and it's it's a great great piece. But I haven't been able to find it in audio format, and so when I reached out to him to see if I could could you know use his book, he's he's like, hey, you can't don't ask me. Um, and at the back, it was really convenient because he has this list of. Uh, all the copyright holders and the sources, uh, and he's like, go to those people and you ask them if um, if you can use their works. So I am going to use their works, but I do like how um, Long has has uh, edited some of, uh, not edited them really, but um, excerpted the pieces. He's highlighted kind of the the main ideas of some of these works. So some of, sometimes I will be reading from Long's excerpted excerpted, however you say that. Um, piece, uh, his work. I highly recommend you check that out. It's uh, it's also a good good place if you want to do something similar to this and and uh, create audio versions, which would be fantastic of of his whole book. That would be great. But I found that it's, I mean, it's been probably a year since I started trying to get permissions, and a lot of people were pretty responsive. But you know there were some big name publishers or or um, that were kind of difficult to work with, or um, just didn't respond really. And then there are there are other publishers. I ran into one problem. Uh, I forget with which piece, but uh, I was trying to get permission for it, and but the the company had gone out of business, and then you had to track them down and figure out who who uh, owned the copyright now. So it was just really a cumbersome process and and tedious, but. Michael Long's um, resourcing helped out significantly, at least to start that process. And there are still some pieces, there are definitely some pieces that I want to present here that I can't because I still have yet to get permissions. I think I've got like five or six pieces that I'd really love to share, but I, I just can't get responses from people or figure out who owns the copyright. So anyway, with all of that under our belt, let's jump into the episode. Today's episode is going to be a work by Ernest Fremont Tittle, and it is entitled, If America is Drawn into War, Can You as a Christian Participate in It or Support It? It was copyrighted in 1941 by the Christian Century, and it is reprinted by permission from the February 5th, 1941 issue of the Christian Century, and I have, uh, I will be reading excerpted pages 178 through 80. And you can get the link to the Christian Century in the show notes. 
So before reading the article proper, um, just a, a, a very brief background on Tittle. I don't know that much about him um, and, and doing a little bit of research. Um, I mean, there's not much that stands out too much. Um, the main thing to know about him is that he wasn't a pacifist. He went uh, to help out in World War I, and after seeing what he saw, he became a pacifist, and he remained a pacifist for the rest of his life, including through World War II, despite resistance, right? Because that was, that was a war that was um, you know, pretty, pretty supported, especially you know, after uh, being bombed at Pearl Harbor, you get this, this nationalistic zeal. And so uh, he faced pushback for being a pacifist in the face of World War II, but he maintained his pacifism. So here is Tittle's work. If America is drawn into war, can you, as a Christian, support it? In 1917, I believed that war was the only means of preserving a humane and civilized culture. In that conviction, I left a wife and three children and went to France. I undertook to promote a fighting morale. I did what little I could as a, at a first aid dressing station to relieve the suffering of wounded men. On the way to the front, I came upon a poem that deeply moved me. It was found on the body of a dead and unidentifiable Australian who had written, Rejoice whatever anguish rend the heart that God has given you a priceless dower to live in these great times and have your part in freedom's crowning hour that ye may tell your sons who see the light high in the heavens their heritage to take. I saw the powers of darkness put to flight. I saw the morning break. But the powers of darkness were not put to flight. Men were killed, millions of them, including promising young writers and artists and musicians and scientists and philosophers. Women were left desolate, multitudes of them. Wealth was destroyed. Hunger stalked and pestilence raged over vast areas of the earth. Thirty million civilians were liquidated. The world was set on the road to an economic debacle. But justice was not achieved. Liberty was not secured. The rights and liberties of small nations were not guaranteed. Brute force was not banished from international affairs. The world was not made safe for democracy or for morality, or for Christianity or for anything else that decent men care for and would be glad to die for. A heritage there was for the sons of men who died in the First World War, but it was not light high in the heavens, or anywhere else. It was the descending darkness of the present war. I am now convinced that war, being, as the Oxford Conference said, a defiance of the righteousness of God as revealed in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, cannot serve the ends of freedom and justice, but is certain to defeat them. So if the United States becomes a belligerent in Europe or in Asia, I shall undertake to contribute in some way to the good of my country, but I shall not support the war. The present war in Europe is not only a clash of imperialism. It is also a conflict of ideologies and ways of life. There is now far more at stake than there was in 1917. Prussianism threatened the world with whips. Hitlerism threatens it with scorpions. 
It is now all essential to the welfare and progress of humanity that Hitlerism be overcome. On this point, America, American Christians are agreed. The point on which they are not agreed is the means by which Hitlerism can be overcome. Christian pacifists do not proclaim that tyranny is better than war. They proclaim that tyranny cannot be overcome by war. They believe with the late Lord Lothian that the triumph of Hitler grew out of the despair that settled on Central Europe in the years of war, defeat, inflation, and revolutionary propaganda. And they believe that this war is now producing political, economic, and psychological conditions that make for the survival and spread of Hitlerism. First, I believe that war as we know it cannot pave the way for doing good. When the fighting ends, who makes the peace? Not the men who actually fought the war, nor the persons who blessed it, nor the professors who glorified it. When the fighting ends, the people who make the peace were the same people whose ambitions and practices created the situation which bred the war. It has been said of the pacifist that he has a confidence in human nature that human nature cannot support. As a matter of fact, it is the non-pacifist, not the pacifist, who believes that after a long-drawn-out orgy of indiscriminate killing and wholesale destruction, people may be expected to think rationally and act justly. The pacifist has no such confidence in human nature. Second, I believe that war, as we now know it, cannot even hold evil in check. Total war is itself a most active and destructive evil. It knows no distinction of guilty and innocent, or even of combatant and non-combatant. It has no reverence for personality. It treats human beings as if they were things. It demands the distortion of truth. It knows no distinction of right and wrong, but only military necessity. It requires men to believe that the end for which they are fighting is so important that it justifies the use of any means. It is now persuading men that a food blockade, although it may bring starvation, disease, and death to innocent aged persons and women and children, is justified on the ground that it is essential to the preservation of civilization. Can war, nevertheless, be made a to hold evil in check? I have no confidence in attempts to preserve civilization by means that are themselves a denial and betrayal of everything that is essential to a humane and civilized culture. When men do evil that good may come, what they get is not the good they seek, but the evil they do. History joins the New Testament in saying, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that also shall he reap. It is the Christian faith that the cross of Christ is the supreme revelation of God's method of dealing with evil. The Son of God goes about doing good. He encounters opposition. But when he is reviled, he reviles not again. He does not try to overcome evil with more evil. He undertakes to overcome evil with good. He resists evil, but never with its own weapons. Condemning it unsparingly, he resists it with truth and love even unto death, his own death on a cross. That, Christianity maintains, is God's way of dealing with evil. That, St. Paul declares, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That, pacifists believe, is the only way out of the world's misery. I am convinced that the doing of good is the only way to put an end to aggression. Under present conditions, aggression may not be wholly unprovoked. 
To say this is by no means to condone aggression, which in any case is an infamous thing. It is only to face the fact that, rooted in historical events and psychological situations, aggression is seldom unprovoked. Nations that benefit from a world situation which denies equality of opportunity may view with abhorrence any attempt to change it by force, but if they themselves refuse to consent to peaceful change through discussion and negotiation, their refusal may be as immoral as the aggression it provokes. In a world that is suffering from injustice piled upon injustice, the immediate overcoming of evil may be impossible. There may be no escape from the wages of sin. The question then is, what course, if faithfully followed, would eventually lead to a better state of affairs? War, I am convinced, is not the answer. On the contrary, it can only provide new soil for the growth of dictatorship and aggression. The answer, I believe, is the persistent doing of good. Injustice breeds injustice, hatred breeds hatred, cruelty breeds cruelty, war breeds war, and no less surely does good beget good. If the United States were invaded, I should feel called upon to resist the invader by refusing to become his accomplice in the doing of evil. Both in South Africa and India, this kind of resistance has produced notable results. It produces a situation which the aggressor is unprepared to handle. Air raid for air raid, blockade for blockade, evil for evil. This he has been taught to expect, and when it occurs, he knows what to do. But what is he to do when the pastors of all the Protestant churches of the Netherlands read from their pulpits a vigorous protest in the name of Christ against any attempt to force upon their country an anti-Jewish program? Nonviolent resistance forces the aggressor to think, which he can hardly do without a disastrous loss of military morale. It forces him to think because although it refuses to become his accomplice, it does not seek to hurt him. Pacifists do not suppose that nonviolent resistance can be offered without risk of arrest, imprisonment, and death. There would doubtless be many casualties, just as in war. Yet the end result, pacifists believe, would be far different, for war produces in victor and vanquished alike a state of mind that forbids the making of a just and durable peace, whereas nonviolent resistance, which appeals to the best in the aggressor and calls forth the best in his victim, may hope to be redemptive. Of course, nonviolent resistance to evil is not enough. It must be accompanied by a positive program of good which seeks long-range objectives. I believe that Christian pacifism has relevance to the relations between nations as well as to the relations of the individual to his fellows. The doing of good is not only the way of life for the individual, it is also the way of life for society. What would pacifism as our national policy require? As a national policy, pacifism would require the United States to set its own house in order. It would seek a real solution, which peacetime conscription is not, for the problem of unemployment and equality of opportunity for all Americans, including Negroes. It would lead the United States to become indeed a good neighbor, concerned that all nations should have equal access to raw materials and needed markets for their industrial good. In the present crisis, Pacifism as a national policy would constrain the United States to announce to the world, number one, its readiness to associate itself with other nations in the building of a new world order, number two, its determination in any case to order its own life with a sensitive regard for the well-being of other peoples, number three, 
its desire to contribute to the relief of human suffering in war-stricken regions through gifts of food, clothing, and medical supplies, and number four, its readiness at the war's end to make loans for economic rehabilitation if convinced of the desirability of the projects for which the money was sought. This foundation of justice being laid, pacifism would constrain the United States to appeal for an armistice and for an earnest attempt through discussion and negotiation to find a fundamental solution of world problems in a just peace. Pacifism as a national strategy would pursue a policy, not of appeasement, but of reconciliation. Between these policies there is a vast range of difference. Appeasement is concerned only to safeguard individual and national self-interest at whatever cost to others. Reconciliation seeks to promote fellowship through justice and goodwill. Pacifism finds the surest grounds of security not in concession or in conquest, but in confidence. Goodwill is a recognized asset in business. It is equally crucial in the affairs of nations. To seek goodwill is not impractical idealism. It is the most hard-headed realism. But would it not be an act of insanity to trust Hitler? Yes, under present conditions. It is a fact, however, that Hitler has power only so long as the German army chooses to support him. And it is not a fact that the German people are wholly devoid of human decency, or that they have no appreciation of the things which make for peace. To say that the Germans have ceased to be civilized people is to reveal oneself a victim of war-born bitterness and confusion. It would not, in my judgment, be an act of insanity to seek an official statement of peace aims, a reasonable basis for the cessation of hostilities, an opportunity through discussion and negotiation to find a fundamental solution of world problems in a just peace. On the contrary, it would be an act of high statesmanship which would indicate that the responsible leadership of the United States has decided to trust in God and in the power of justice and goodwill, not merely in human cunning and brute force. War is an attempted shortcut to the solution of terrific social problems, which it does not solve but only makes more difficult of a solution. It is thought to be, but never is, a relatively quick way out of an intolerable situation. I can see ruin ahead if the United States becomes a belligerent in Europe or in Asia. Ruin for us and for all mankind. The only way out of the world's misery is, I believe, the doing of good. That way I feel bound to take the advocate for my country. All right, there are a number of things that I want to pull out of here. And um, after I pull them out, it might be something that you want to go back through and listen to again and, and maybe... Um, kind of steepen those yourselves and, and, and think about it with, with new eyes to see kind of what I'm drawing out. The first thing, you know, about it's all throughout the work, but especially right around a, a quarter of the way through, he starts to talk about two things that I think are, are really central to, to my line of thinking, what draws me to nonviolence. And he focuses on the means and the ends, you know. Of, so if... If you're doing violence and you're sowing seeds of war and strife, how do you think peace is going to come out of that? And that's one of the the kind of strands that he pulls on. The other one is, um, he says, quote, it requires, I guess war requires men to believe that the end for which they are fighting is so important that it justifies the use of any means, end quote. And so he talks about 
Now, basically, look, when you're in war, you can do whatever you want to do because the moral good in war is winning, right? Because your side's right and the other side's wrong and they deserve judgment. And therefore, you get World War II, which like three quarters of the people or maybe even more killed were civilians, where you can firebomb a whole city, where you can nuclear bomb a city. Um, it, it's just absolutely insane, where you can create a blockade that starves millions of people, the aged, the children. Like You can justify anything you want to because the moral ethic isn't objective Christian morality. It's winning the war. And so this... This section right here, about a quarter of the way through, um, really hits on our our season on consequentialism, our season on means and ends, as well as our season on on just war and showing how look there there really there is no just war. We don't we don't follow our own expectations and standards, not even close. The second thing I like here is that um, he I don't know if he's directly pushing back against Niebuhr or what. But, you know, he, he says, towards the end, he says that, um, you know, look, we're not really idealists. Pacifism isn't idealist. It's, it's realistic. And he kind of explains how, how it is realistic. And you see that his acknowledgement of realism all the way through, where he's, he says that, look, nonviolence comes with a cost. I think there'd be people who died, maybe even just as many as died in a war. And so he acknowledges that. And, and pacifism, especially at this time, like people, people think of these idealistic pacifists who think that human nature is so good and um, you know the, they just like tiptoe through the tulips and are singing kumbaya. And that's not at all what at least the, this strain of Christian pacifism produces. It produces a people who recognize that Christianity might require sacrifice. Doing the right thing might require sacrifice. Not of other people. That's what that's what the world says, and that's what Christians who embrace war do. We'll go sacrifice other people. But what pacifism says is Jesus might call us to sacrifice self to do the right thing and to love even our enemies. Is that in the Bible? I think it is. And and Tittle says that's the true reality of the kingdom. That's the way the world works. What you sow is what you reap. And so pacifism, according to Tittle, um, takes a realist, realistic perspective of the world, and it's, it's the other side that doesn't embrace realism because they don't see the continued violence that they're, they're sowing in, in the seeds that they're planting now. And, and he, you know, he doesn't see into the future, but he knows history well enough and he knows how, the, how God's world works in terms of morality to know that hey, should we go to war, we're going to create lots of issues. And sure enough, I mean, out of World War I was basically birthed Hitler. So uh, you have the Middle East issues that we have today are significantly birthed in, um, or at least uh, coddled in, in World War I. Um, a, a lot of the issues in Africa, um, genocides today and things, are a result of hundreds of years of Western uh, violence to them and Westerners creating borders at, at willy-nilly as they will and, and without knowing the cultures and, um, you know, what, which group is where and just dividing up countries. And so, I mean, 
all of the violence that we do is, is what begets the violence that we see today. But what these anti-realists do, these idealists who think that, well, war will fix this, is that they, they try to stop a problem today by the means which created the problem way back in the day that, that led to today's issues. And they just continue to, to push over the next domino and the next domino and the next domino. And so Tittle says, those guys are the idealists. Those guys are the ones who aren't living in reality and, and acknowledging the reality of a world, the world that God created to work on good and, uh, and evil and, and the way that we sow seeds. And this harkens back to our season on nonviolent action. It, Tittle, what Tittle says is exactly what we, we end up seeing. He doesn't have the, uh, you know, the benefit of being able to see into the future, but having our, like Gandhi was just starting out there with, uh, around Tittle's time. But when we look in retrospect and we have works by people such as Erica Chenoweth showing us, uh, doing the research on, hey, how does nonviolent action compare to violent action? And we find out that what do you know? God's world does actually work so that nonviolence tends to produce better results more often. And that's not what makes it right, but we'd expect that doing right in a world created by a righteous and good creator would be bent towards uh, when you sow seeds of good, you get seeds, or you get a harvest that is good, and vice versa. And so go back to our season on nonviolent action and, and look at how how that has, um, you know, the research there and, and how nonviolent action has played out through history. Finally, uh, about three quarters of the way through, Tittle gets into, you know, some of the, the things that he would argue for national policy. And it is interesting to me, so I, I don't know Tittle's stance on government and stuff, and we just finished up a season on government, so you know that I, I'm not for legislation and stuff. But it's interesting to me how a lot of the the nonviolent people from you know the 1800s on, a lot of that group, whether they're Quakers or not, uh, Quakers or not, ended up being being for um, the the uh, African Americans for the the black community at this time. And Tittle throws that in, right? He says um, it would seek a real solution for the problem of unemployment and equality of opportunity for all Americans, including Negroes. Now this is 1941 that he's writing this. This is well before um, civil rights has gotten onto its feet and before it's popular to say this anywhere, north or south. And what you find in a lot of these works from the 1800s on, and maybe even a little bit before that, but especially the 1800s on, is that a lot of these pacifists are also seeking justice of, uh, for the black community or seeking justice for the poor. Now, my group would also point out that a lot of these people ended up, let's say, being universalists or um, maybe uh, taking a particular view of the Bible that, that uh, my group doesn't like, uh, thinking that the Bible is too watered down and more suggestion as opposed to, you know, this this rule book or I don't know, whatever my group would call it. Um, and I don't know, I just get so torn between between those two things because 
I don't know. Would I rather have? Well, actually, I, I do know what I would lean. I'd, what, so ask yourself, would you rather have Christians who go to church every week, believe that the Bible's inerrant, um, and are preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, and then after church go out for a, a picnic and um, hang somebody, like lynch somebody, and roast them over a fire and cut off their testicles and all that kind of stuff? And I just listened to um, Going to Meet the Man by, uh, by James Baldwin. And his, his last story, for which the book is titled Going to Meet the Man, is basically that kind of story. This, this uh, white guy's um, childhood first experience of, of going to see this type of hanging. I don't remember if it was after church or not, but uh, I've read enough books to know that uh, a lot of things centered around uh, either doing things after church or with your church community involving lynchings and, and stuff. People, deacons, elders, parts of the church were significant a lot of times in being the ones, the leaders of the community, who would do that kind of stuff. And uh, it reminds me of Jesse Washington, the the just most abhorrent, disgusting lynching that I can think of that was attended by 10,000 plus people. Christians probably, right? Southern, Texas. Um, what else would they be? They were Christians. So what do I think is more of a, a threat? You know, if I had to pick, do I think if Tittle became a universalist and has a looser view of the Bible but is helping the poor and the outcast and the, uh, the oppressed in his society, would I be, rather be a part of his group or would I rather be a part of my group in our history? And I got to say, Tittle would win for me. Um, Right, because there are a lot of people who say to God, "Lord, Lord," right? Didn't I know you? Um, and maybe they did intellectually, but Jesus says, "Get away from me! I didn't know you." But He says to the other person who's like, "Well, did I know you, God? I don't remember you." And He says, "Yeah, but you fed the poor, or you fed the hungry, you visited the prisoner. So, yeah, you 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 did that to me." Um, and again, of course, you'd like to have orthodoxy and orthopraxy go together. I understand that. But um, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think you have orthodoxy if you don't have the orthopraxy. And I think James would agree with me. Um, Faith without works is dead. You don't really believe what you say you believe if you're not doing the work. So it's interesting that that Tittle here, you know, we see him just like a lot of other pacifists. I think, I, I didn't do a study on this, but I think it would be largely true that you're not going to find many, if any, Christian pacifists who, at least towards the end of their lives, aren't advocating for the black community and and equality um, in significant distinction to the culture around them. And that says something to me about the position of nonviolence. If nonviolence leads people to be ahead of their times, to face uh, criticism of, oh, well, you're not a patriot because you're not supporting the war. Or, oh, you think that Negroes should should uh, have equality with us? Or any other number of, of things that Tittle probably experienced. If you're willing to, to sacrifice and, and that kind of rejection, um, 
and you're 20, 50, 100 years ahead of your time in terms of social acceptance and mainstream Christian acceptance, um, I think that kind of proves the position right or is very strong in going to prove it. But maybe that's just me. Uh, we could maybe make a case for that and, and hash that out in some other episode. But for now, we'll just uh, we'll leave this episode here and go back and read it a couple more times maybe, uh, listen to it, and um, I hope you enjoy and, and found this beneficial. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.